Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, we sure thank God for, for Jeff Solomon and how he steps right into a preaching opportunity. So we thought we'd give him the opportunity to have a little break from, uh, from this responsibility so he can focus on, on his sermon. So if you're usually in his class, you're in the right place. You're going to get a, a dose, a, a lesson from Ecclesiastes today. And that will be uh, meaningful and helpful to you. So let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for the precise purpose of our being in this room together is to study your word and how we lift our hearts to you in praise and thanksgiving for leaving us your word that is clear and, and, uh, and meaningful and helpful to us. We are very needy people. And so we pray that as we read and study your word that uh, you would uh, uh, bless us by it, that you would minister to us, you would encourage us. I uh, pray for those in the class that uh, may need a special encouragement from you. You would do that today, even uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray for Justin that you would give him peace and, uh, and rest in your providence of where he is today, and for Justin as he preaches for us later. So we thank you now for this time to look into your sacred word. We pray that uh, even here in Ecclesiastes we would see our Lord Jesus Christ and we'd find our hope renewed and refreshed in him. For he is our only hope. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is our third lesson in Ecclesiastes. So if you're, if, if you hadn't been in our, in our class, we're not going to go back and do the first two lessons. But um, we did get through... <coughs> through uh, at least verse 8 of chapter, <coughs> uh, chapter 1 uh, uh, last week. And so just to kind of <coughs> give you a little bit of a uh, <coughs> synopsis, uh, we believe the book is written by uh, Solomon, the great king of, uh, of Israel, the son of David. That's what verse 1 says. Uh, chapter 2 gives uh, the premise of the book. Uh, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or, or uh, the word actually means uh, a breath or a whisper, like a mist. Everything's just a mist, or it's like a, like a puff of smoke. It's elusive. You can't get your, your hands around it. So that's his premise. And the question that uh, he will address in the whole book that we'll look at again today is verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil that which he toils under the sun? <coughs> So he will address this, uh, this question. Is there any meaning? Do you have anything left? Does, it, does it, anything produce anything? Does it ever go anywhere? And he's going to address that question and, uh, and answer it. By the time we get to the end of the book, he's not, uh, he doesn't tell us all of his answers. He wants us to, to engage with him in this search that he's doing. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it about uh, when he did this search, we believe he would, I believe that he was in his time of apostasy uh, when he did this search. 
and that he repented and came back to the Lord and Ecclesiastes is the, is the evidence of that. <clears throat> well, he begins um, in chapter 1 with verses 4 through 11 with a poem. And um, this poem is to show the stability and the longevity of the earth and the brevity and, um, and temporality, I guess I'm just saying the same word, of, of people. And he, he, uh, he uh, brackets this point, verses 4 and verses 11, with death. Death is one of his, one of his uh, most prolific uh, topics in the book. He really wants us to deal with the concept of death and with our own, with our own death in answering this question. So look, in, see in verse uh, 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. So there's the idea of death there. And then in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things or former people, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things or latter people yet to be among those who are, who are to come. So not only do we die, but nobody remembers us. We, we just go away in, in the memory of, of other people. So we got down to uh, kind of to verse 8 last week. So... so <clears throat> I guess just real quickly, five, five through seven, he talks about the world, how the world is constant, and how it um, it cycles, and and um, the sun rises and the sun sets. Like one author said, the sun chases its tail; it just goes around and around. But it's constant. You can count on the sun to come up the next day. Same thing with the wind; the wind goes on different cycles, and then the water cycle too. You know, the streams run into the ocean, the evaporation picks it up in the clouds, rains back onto the ground over the streams. It goes on and on and on and on and on, and on again. And he wants to show that. Um, and then in verse 8, and, and then the point is, the sun keeps going around in a circle. Uh, the waters come and go and flow and rain, but the, the ocean never gets filled up. Uh, so that shows two things. It shows the constancy and the and the firmness of the world system, but it also is an illustration of this this idea that there can be a sense of meaningless in, in repetition. And so he wants to so that happens in in the world, which shows its stability, but it happens in us too. So you look in verse eight. All things are full of weariness and. I don't know if you have a different version than ESV, but the Hebrew guys that I looked at said really it could mean that all things are hard at work, that all things are full. I think King, uh, King James says all things are filled <coughs> with labor. So he's saying that even as we as we observe the the natural world, we see that all these cycles they're working, they're they're uh, they're moving, they're working. And we can't even, in verse, verse 8 says, a man cannot utter it, we can't understand it. But then he makes this uh, comparison, this repetitive work of creation, the sun, the wind, and the water, um, is comprehensible to mankind, and it matches the threefold same of our speaking, of our seeing, and of our hearing. So just look at that. But <clears throat> all things are, are full of work, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. You know, your eye never says, okay, I've seen enough. We're always curious, we're always looking. 
and looking for new things, uh, looking to learn. And so the eye is not satisfied. The ear is not, nor has the ear been filled with hearing. We never say, that's all I need to hear. I, we, our ears always are welcoming more, wanting to know, wanting to know more. Uh, but look at the key word there, the eye is not satisfied. We can hear things, we can look at things all day, we can hear things all day, but we're not satisfied. That's, that's the point that he's making here, I think, is that in the same way that the, that the, uh, that the water cycle uh, flows into the oceans and then is absorbed and rains again and goes again, it never seems to accomplish anything. And for us, too, for us as people, we can see everything that we want and that we desire, but we're still not satisfied. We can hear everything that we want or, or desire, and we're still not satisfied with it. And you may say, well, isn't there a proper curiosity? Surely it's good for us to be curious. We want people to, you know, to have uh, entrepreneurial uh, thoughts and, and to be able to uh, explore and to do new things. That's not what he's talking about here. And you'll see why in verse, uh, in verse 9. Verse 9, he makes a, an amazing statement that's quite well known for the book of Ecclesiastes. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now is that, uh, do you agree with that? There's nothing new under the sun? Yes. Well, I've got a, I don't have any iPhone, but it was new one time. And maybe you have a new car or a new house or a new sweater or a new hairdo or, I shouldn't use that as an example, that can get me in trouble. But. So what does he mean? There's nothing. Yeah, there's lots of, in fact, I've heard it said a good advertisement is something that persuades you this, that, that you can't live without something that you didn't even know existed 30 seconds ago. So there's new stuff coming at us all the time. So what does he mean there's nothing? Nothing new. Anybody have a thought there? Ultimately, like our natures, things end up turning out the same. We repeat the same mistakes, the same foibles, all that kind of stuff. Okay, human nature is the same. Good, Rachel, good. How about uh, just basic things like communication? We, people have always communicated, and we may use a little phone now, but that doesn't change the concept of communication. Uh, mothers have always changed babies' diapers, I think. I mean, I don't know what they did. But, <laughs> so the, the point is, there's nothing basically new under the sun. Um, notice the quote that I have. <clears throat> there in uh, from uh, David Gibson under 1 verses 9 and 10 stop thinking that meaning and happiness and satisfaction reside in novelty what is new is not really new and what feels new will soon feel old uh, I started to, I, I looked in my closet and I have about probably six or seven old iPhones I mean I've maybe five or six that's over 20 years. It's not like I go get the new one every, every time. But, but uh, and I'm afraid. I don't know what to do with them. I'm afraid 
somebody's going to get the information and do something with it, but so you can help me with that. But I guarantee you the one that I got that was an iPhone 4 or 6, when I bought it, or my company bought it for me actually, it was the latest and greatest and most wonderful thing that could have uh, been put in my hand. Um, but I don't even know what to do with the thing now. I'd throw it away if I could. It has no, it has no meaning to me at all, and no, probably no value either. So, so what, uh, what was new and exciting <coughs> to us at one moment literally be begins to become old, and we'll look for a replacement uh, before too long. And <clears throat> I think uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is good to tell us that. Because we forget that. We, we think that there's something uh, refreshing and uh, invigorating and meaningful in having something new or different. We don't like the humdrum, same old thing uh, that will happen. Dan? Yeah, John? Is there a sense here where he's suggesting nothing ever is really accomplished, nothing of significance remains? <laughs> stuff over and over again and repeats, so if it repeats, it's like, what's the point of doing it in the first time? It's just you're going to get more of the same, <coughs> or not quite that um, down, not quite so much of a downer as yeah. that. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think he minds accomplishment, and, and, and he doesn't mind uh, making improvements. He's okay with that. It's how we look at that. That it, if we think that we've made an improvement in something and therein we find our meaning in life, we're going to find out that we're going to have to, you're going to have to mow the yard again. It was a great accomplishment when you mowed it last week, but you're going to have to mow that thing again or pull those weeds again. And so he, he's, not he's not giving us his answer to this question. He's just telling, here's, a, here's an issue we have to deal with that we tend to think that newness and difference uh, brings meaning and purpose in life. He said, maybe it does for a moment or for a day or for, for a cell phone, maybe a year or two, but even that in itself will lose its sense of meaning. And that's why he, he packages this, this under this idea, all things are, uh, depending on how you define this word, all things are vanity. I think the better way is the, is the, the actual uh, meaning of the word of, of breath or a whisper all things are very temporary they're going they're going to go away now of course we understand in the new in the new covenant there is an eternal dimension to everything he's not dealing with that here he's dealing with death to him because I think he's writing this during this time of apostasy uh, God's not involved in this answer and that's part of the problem we'll see that maybe in a few minutes um, so death is the end death is done and he, he's trying to help us to deal with, uh, with that. Um, so verse uh, 10, is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. And then verse 11, he hits us with death just <clears throat> immediately again. There is no remembrance of former things. And you may have a footnote this says things are people. There is, there is no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after you. 
So when I read that, I, I say, he says, Dan, uh, you're going to die, and it won't be long that people will not, it won't be long people will not remember you. I, had a, I think it was funny. Uh, I mean, I worked for a ministry for 37 years, and um, officially retired from it in February. And a, a friend of mine called me a couple of months ago, well, not a, a guy that had been a student of mine 20 years ago, and he was trying to look me up to see you know, where I was. So he knew I worked for Marketplace Ministries. So he called the, the office, and he said, I'd like to talk to Dan Truett. And the receptionist said, nobody by that name works here. And, and he said, well, maybe not, but he's worked, I think he worked there 35 years. And she said, let me check my database. And she checked the database. She said, nobody named Dan Truett in our database. <laughs> So I'm not even dead in there. <laughs> but then the rest of this, and you can do this too, uh, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things to come or latter people, I think. You know, one day our, our, our little Sawyer is going to grow old and die, and it won't be too long that he'll be forgotten. So that's the point he's, uh, he's making there. Okay. Now let's move on to uh, the next section. Verse 12. Notice in verse 12 he, he begins with, I the preacher. Uh, so now he's doing first person. There's this, this idea that there's two speakers in the book of, of Ecclesiastes. There's uh, Solomon, the, this preacher, the main speaker, but then there's also a, uh, a narrator. And the narrator only shows up maybe three times, two times particularly. So if you, if you think about chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, this is really a third person. Notice verse uh, 2, Vanity of Vanity says the preacher. So the narrator is telling us what the, what the preacher says. And then at the, end of the, at the end of the book, the narrator comes back in and gives his conclusions. But in chapter, in verse 12, uh, Solomon now picks up himself uh, and speaks uh, in first person. And <clears throat> so notice now what he's done is he's beginning to, to uh, expand his premise that everything is empty or vain or temporary or elusive. You can't get your hands on it. And the question he wants to answer is um, in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's, he's used... Um, he has used uh, observations about the creation to begin to answer that question. I think it's interesting, um, and we looked at this in the book of Proverbs, that the book of Proverbs connects wisdom and, the, and Genesis and the creation. Uh, but also in other wisdom books, for example, uh, the book of Job, what does God use to get Job's attention? He uses the creation. Because it, it, what does it do? It puts Job in his, in his place. And that's what, that's what uh, Solomon has done, I think, with the creation uh, in verses 1 through 11. But now he's going to do something different. He said, I've told you what the creation says about life. Now I'm going to tell you what I've learned about it myself. I've done this great uh, examination. And so he's, uh, I think I'll just read <clears throat> verses 12 through uh, 18. And then we'll look at it. So he, he's, I guess you could say he's given us, he's going to tell us now what he's observed 
in, um, in his life. And I think this is the observation that he made maybe through all of his life, but particularly as he married foreign wives and, and, uh, and was unfaithful to Yahweh and began to worship other gods. I think this is where, this is that time of his life that he went through that investigation. So he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in, Jer in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men, children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I think I'll stop there because verses 12 through 18 really have two parts to it. Uh, we'll look at that in just a moment. But notice um, what Solomon says. I'm going to tell you what I've learned. I'm going to I'm going to tell you with my great wisdom what I've observed about life. And <clears throat> you notice I. Uh, I say there's Solomon's epistemology uh, is suspect. You know that big theological, philosophical word epistemology just simply means how you know what you know, how you know, how you understand knowledge, how you learn. And so Solomon's uh, Solomon's epistemology, the way he learns, is suspect. Notice that it's centered on his own self-consciousness. I applied my heart. I said in my heart. Uh, verse 14, I have seen everything. Uh, verse 15, or verse 16, I said in my heart, I acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were before me. So it's this, it's this closed system. He said, I've, I've got this all figured out. And I'm the, the great wise Solomon, and these are my credentials, and I know what I'm talking about because I'm a wise man. As he talks about how he used his wisdom and boy if we had time we'd go to first kings chapter well three through eleven but three or three to five particularly and you know the story how god just endowed him with uh, with wisdom in fact just look at it just a moment i think you'll be amazed how over the top it is first kings chapter um, <clears throat> chapter four 1 Kings chapter 4. Verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, his songs were 1,005, he spoke of trees, uh, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom. So two things there. One, we see clearly that God is the one that endowed Solomon with this wisdom and that, that it was renowned across that part of the world. They, you know, the Queen of Sheba came and others came just to observe Solomon and his, and his wisdom. 
Um, but there's something different about the wisdom that Solomon uses here. Uh, do you remember, if you were in our Proverbs class, we looked a lot at, at, at Proverbs. What is the, uh, the definition of wisdom in Proverbs is uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, isn't it? Look, uh, look back at Proverbs uh, chapter 3. This is a very, <coughs> a very familiar passage. So in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Two things here. The, uh, godly wisdom brings promises with it that God will make your pathway straight and it will be healthy to you, maybe physically, but particularly spiritually and, and emotionally. But the second thing is the, the uh, antithesis of, of uh, godly wisdom of putting our fear in the Lord is putting our confidence in ourselves. Notice he said, uh, do not lean on your own understanding in verse 5. And be not wise in your own eyes. And I think those two, those two sentences describe Solomon to a T as he's explaining how he is going to, he in my wisdom, and I think it's probably good, the pronoun my, is, it's his wisdom. It's not the godly wisdom of the book of Proverbs. It's another kind of wisdom. It's a man-centered, uh, self-centered wisdom. It's a closed, uh, a closed system. Dan, yeah. I just have a question. I, I, I hear what you're saying, being wise in your own eyes is not good. However, on the passage in 1 Kings that you just read, for he was wiser than all other men, and, and in Egypt and maybe the world. But So that's bearing out what Solomon's saying. So doesn't that conflict with he's not really wise in his own eyes? He's, he's just reiterating what it's said about it in Kings. Yeah, well, perhaps. Of course, we're, we're, um, that chapter 4 that we just read is early in Solomon's reign. And we're talking about something that happened maybe the last 10 years of his, of his life during his apostasy. So I think he's, he did start with that great wisdom that was God-given wisdom. And that's what got the attention of the world, of the, of the nations. But something's happened. Um, that's distorted his idea of understanding of wisdom. This is a different kind of wisdom than the, than the pure wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, let's, uh, let's keep moving. So let's look at, at this verse, these verses 13 through 15. Um, like I said, there's two parts to these first verses, uh, 12 through 18. There's verses 13 through 15 that ends in a proverb, and then there's verses 16 through 18, and that ends in a proverb. So they're, uh, they're similar. They both are dealing uh, with wisdom. But notice the theological struggle that this man has. Now, he doesn't talk a lot about God uh, at this time, 
But uh, where, where before God was the source of his wisdom and of his life, now God is his opponent. Look at what he says. I applied my heart, in verse 13, and I applied my heart to search and to, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So now God has become his opponent. He said, God has made this hard for me. It's, it's not happy, the, this search that I have to keep on going through uh, to find meaning in life. It's unhappy. And he says that God has done this. Notice an interesting thing that uh, one of my Hebrew guys picked up that I, I sure wouldn't see. But um, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of, and it could be the children of Adam. And so one, one commentator said that this is a direct reference back to the curse of uh, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, it is quite amazing if you read that passage. Well, let's read it. Genesis 3. And as, as you're turning there, I'll tell you that <clears throat> there are some interesting studies that compare, Ecclesia, that compare Ecclesiastes uh, with Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We'll, we'll see that. You, uh, you folks from Jeff's class may not see it, but we're going to see it in a couple of weeks in, our, in the other class. But anyway, uh, uh, but look at Genesis, Genesis 3 and notice the curse that God brings to Adam. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. <clears throat> Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for... Uh, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So you can see in that curse the, the complaint that uh, Solomon has back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 when he describes this unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. But just the, the struggle and the, the frustration of life, uh, he's, not, he's not happy about it. He doesn't like that God has done that. Uh, to him and he said so therefore when I look at all my toil and all that I do I find in verse uh, 14 <clears throat> that it is all empty I try to find some meaning in it but it's just such a struggle and it's so frustrating I try to find some meaning in it but um, but it's it's uh, empty and it's it's like a, a breath of uh, like a breath or like a wisp and it's like striving after the wind I try to grasp it, understand it, but you ever tried to grasp a puff of smoke, you can't do it. You can see it for a moment, but it, it goes away. So this man is really frustrated, and it's pointed out here uh, in verse 15. In verse 15, um, well, I think I would say at this time in his life, Solomon has a problem with life because he has a problem with God. Have you ever You've done this yourself. I know I have complained about your circumstances. 
what I have, but you trace that back just a couple of steps, and if we trust and believe in the sovereign providence of God, we're really complaining. Uh, it could be to that person that pulled out in front of us, or our spouse, or children, whatever it is. But because of the circumstances, we really are complaining, uh, complaining to God. And notice what he says in verse 15. <clears throat> what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So verse 15, he's saying, there are some things that are just wrong in life. They just don't work. They happen wrongly, and, and there's something wrong with them. And as hard as I try to straighten them out, they will not straighten out. I can't fix, I can't fix what's wrong uh, in this world. Um, if you want to see what he really thinks about that, look in uh, chapter 7, verse 13. Oh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. And he just makes it real clear here. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Or you feel the frustration of this man. Uh, God is sovereign and in control, and I can't change it. And I don't like it. Uh, that's why I'm frustrated. My life seems so meaningless to me. Um, why I... Uh, uh, it's like chasing the wind to try to figure out some type of meaning in life. So I just want us to think for just a moment here the, the stubbornness of the, so, of the sovereignty of God of what he has set in place as reality cannot be changed. Now a lot of it of course is because of the curse but still it is the reality that we, uh, that we live in. And Solomon is trying to help us to see that I like the little uh, uh, this book by Douglas Wilson joy at the end of the tether you know a tether is like a leash on a dog it it limits his uh, uh, his mobility and what what's what solomon is saying and what doug wilson is saying about solomon and about ecclesiastes is that, that god has put extreme limits on us as people and the sooner we understand how long that tether is and be happy with it the sooner we can begin to resolve this problem of meaninglessness in life. But maybe you can just help me think for a moment as we think about the sovereignty of God, what responses should we have? What should our response be when we think about the ironclad, unchangeable sovereignty of God and the way the world is, is made? Doesn't mean we shouldn't change some things that we could, but in general, the way the world is made, and particularly the things that we don't like, that don't that, that are crooked, that we'd like to make straight. What should be our our response to a believer his purpose is good okay no matter what good john to an unbeliever they should be shaking yeah he's acting like an unbeliever now yeah that's exactly right um, we should know that god's sovereignty is good uh, and i was just sure. going to say we stay focused on the promise we know how it's going to end we can we can endure what we're going through now because he's promised us there's going to be something better later. Okay, good. So we know however it may seem now, it'll all work out in the end and that's good. Okay, all things work together for good. All right, any other thoughts? The sovereignty of God. I think yeah. when your perspective shifts, when it's out of your control, there should be a peace that just 
don't know. It's unexplainable. I, I can't change it anyway. So. Okay. Should be peace when we recognize God's unchangeable sovereignty. That's good. Relief. Relief. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, whenever I try to manage things the way that I want them managed, it usually doesn't go the way that I would want it. So things that I okay. think would be good for me or for someone else usually aren't it. But when I realize that I'm not in control of those things and someone who's perfect is, it's mm -hmm. a relief to me to know I'm not even responsible for it. I can just rest. Yeah, that's good. Geneva? Thankfulness is one. We be thankful for the circumstance, and we can be thankful for what we learned going through the circumstance. Okay. Just Thankfulness for the circumstances God allows and causes. Well, this is good. Oh, hey. I'd say, like, prayerful surrender. Um, I've had situations in life where it's like I recognize God's sovereignty, but I'm still freaking out about the situation. Okay. Um, and I just wanted to hold on to what I wanted like so badly, but when I released it and said, you know, God, this is what I want, but I want what you want above all, like, like release this like, from me and like help me to want your will. Like I might grieve this, but in the end, like, but just like still being able to honestly wrestle with God through life and just be vulnerable about your feelings. Um, I think it's really important and in those situations like one really cool marital thing we had was like we both thought the same thing like we separately prayed like we were away from each other for like an hour and when we came back together like his leading was exactly what like what in my talking with God like I felt God was leading as well that was really cool that's good I like that prayerful release I think that's really good. Of course, our Lord Jesus is the is the great example of that, isn't it? In, in, in the garden, part of this is what I want, but not what I want, but what you want. Well, I've had I got two thoughts that are they're flowing around in this room. One is a humility. You've all expressed that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God when we don't understand uh, what's happening when we see things that that on their face are evil and wrong. We humble ourselves. Love that when we see these things that are crooked that cannot be made straight, we want to fix them, make them work so much, but we humble ourselves. And the other one is uh, um, willing to live uh, with mystery, with mystery. Uh, <clears throat> this past week I'd, I'd been, had some illness, so I picked up a little book just to, for something to do. I didn't really want to do any hard work, so I just picked up this little book. It's called uh, "What Did the Cross Achieve?" by J.I. Packer, and uh, it's got it gets kind of technical and it's kind of difficult reading for for some of it. But one of the things he he talks about uh, different um, disagreements and different perspectives on on what Christ uh, accomplished at the cross, and uh, and he made a, a wonderful statement. He said, "Just because." Something is above your reason does not mean it's beyond reason. And, and so that combines this, this humility and this sense of mystery. And he said that the greater God's acts, the greater the possibility of mystery. And of course the greatest act of God would be his redemption through Christ at the cross. So we would expect that there would be the greatest mystery. And he listed about 10 of them. 
said, can you, can you explain to me how Christ took our sins in his body on the tree for three hours and that paid for our sins? No, you can't explain that. It's beyond your reason, but it's not beyond God's reason. So living with mystery, I think, is so good, and that brings us uh, humility, too. Okay, well, um, then the next section is, a, again, another look at, uh, at wisdom. And uh, verse 16, he, he said, I said in my heart, I require great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also uh, is but a striving after wind. So he's just talking more about how he's, now he's examining wisdom, he's trying to separate it from, from uh, what he calls madness and, um, and folly. Uh, and then he has this, he has this uh, little parable here. Um, verse uh, 18 for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow so he's going to say some really good things about wisdom wisdom has helped him to see things and understand how the world operates and it, it uh, but yet he says it's almost like a uh, a trick that the more that wisdom gives you insight and the more you know and the more burden life is for you. Um, notice my notes there. Even wisdom, in verses 16 and 18, even wisdom as valuable as it is, is an enigma. That it is, it's, it's a mystery. It's like the wind and not able to be grasped. And having more wisdom leads to more vexation. Then uh, one of the modern versions I like this says, the wiser you are, the more worries you have, and the more you know, the more it hurts. I think that's really... Um, really true isn't it and particularly this kind of wisdom the kind of wisdom that's that that doesn't have the fear of God as its foundation as its beginning but his own internal closed system understanding of how of how the world works um, so just to maybe kind of wrap this up since we've gotten to the end of chapter one this whole idea of uh, uh, of Solomon's wisdom being so you know, so great and such as an attraction to the whole, to the whole world. Um, it was the very foundation of one of Israel's greatest kings. But the view of the view of wisdom in Ecclesiastes takes on a different story. And what has happened? Well, let's look back at First Kings, um, chapter eleven, and I think we'll see clearly what has happened. Last week we looked at when did this apostasy take place? As, as much as uh, Bible scholars can tell, um, Solomon's reign began in 970 BC and his apostasy apparently happened about 30 years later, so in, in 940 BC. So he was about 50 years old as this chapter 11 apparently is when Solomon was about 50 years old. Then he reigns for 10 more years. He reigns for a total of 40 years. He dies at the age of 60. But let's just read 
chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. <coughs> that would worry you out, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, I'm making those comments can be dangerous. And his wives turned away his heart. Isn't this interesting? The, the big thing he says that we've just read, he said, I, uh, I, I use my heart. I, I, uh, let's see. I'm, You know, his self-centered, uh, his self-centeredness. I said in my heart, I applied my heart. And this is the heart he's applying. The heart that had been turned away uh, by these foreign wives. Um, so verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not holy, true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built the high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Amorites, which, by the way, uh, required child sacrifice. On the mountain east of Jerusalem, so he did all this for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed uh, to their gods. So I think you, you read this, you see that Solomon's uh, problem is not an intellectual educational problem, it's a theological problem. He, he's not worshiping the one true God uh, during this time. And so, so, wonder, so no wonder he has uh, a frustration about life and no wonder that he has frustration uh, with God. Uh, I remember, do you remember that, 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 uh, problem, uh, that um, parable that Jesus told about um, the man that went out and hired people? He hired some at sunrise and then he hired others at nine o'clock and all through the day, hired different, uh, at different times and then he finally got one group that only worked for an hour. Remember, he paid them all the same thing. And that really frustrated the guy that he worked all day, that he got paid the same as the other people did. And do you remember what the, what the boss said? He said, uh, he pretty much said, are you upset with me because, I, because my heart is good? If you look at the footnote in ESV and other places, it says, um, is your eye bad because my heart is good? Is the way you look at this bad? Is it distorting what you see that has happened here and so you think I'm bad? And he has these, uh, these hard thoughts of his master and Solomon has hard thoughts of God. Uh, the, the Puritans uh, remind us of this idea that that's what Satan accomplished in the, in the heart of Eve. When he, got, when he got Eve to begin to question God's goodness and God's love and care for her uh, when he, like John Owen said, once he got to that point, uh, say, he said, Satan, 
clapped his hands together and said, my job is done here. As long as, as, long as our thoughts for, about God are hard thoughts that he's not what he says he is, um, then we're in trouble. And I think that's where Solomon is now. He's going to get this corrected. God's going to correct it for him in the days to come. But um, as we think about God's sovereignty, let's think about his goodness and then let's submit ourselves to him as our good and faithful God. Thank you.